Welcome to Grand Fraud, the global podcast for fraud and corruption investigators, covering the latest on tech trends, best practices, case studies, and legal analysis in the world of serious fraud investigations. Welcome. My name is Paul Milata. I'm a CFE and the host of this show. My guest today is Kyle Welch, who's an assistant professor of accountancy at George Washington University. Kyle, welcome to the Grand Fraud Podcast. Thank you for having me, Paul. A couple of years ago, you published a paper analyzing one of the largest data sets on internal whistleblowers. Can you describe what you found in the course of your research? Yeah, it was a very unusual process, actually, for getting access to this kind of data. I'm an academic. I teach at a university, and I get compensated in part for coming up with ideas and executing on them. And one of the way out there ideas was to see if we could get access to data on whistleblowing from organizations and to see what was kind of in it and what the outcomes were for it. Having relatively little experience in this area, I reached out to the largest provider of these systems. They're the largest provider in like a major way. Almost every organization I know where I live uses them. It's Navex Global. I gave them a call. The basic thrust of it was, is that we have a lot of opinions. I noticed there was a lot of opinions about these systems and how they worked. There wasn't much behind it. There's an assumption that, okay, well, we have a corporation that has a lot of reports must have a lot of problems, right? Or, you know, maybe they have a lot of reports because they really want to hear from their employees. And so um, I reached out to Navex and I said, hey, I'm an academic. And if you do research on your own data, I don't think anybody's going to believe it. But if you can get a third party, somebody that is a little bit more objective to do research, We can actually answer some pretty cool questions. And these questions are not just good to know. They're good for humanity to know. It's good to know how these systems work. Initially, they told me to pound sand. You got to realize this is the most sensitive data any organization has. Give us all the complaints you ever get. Now, a lot of them are, you know, not enough donuts on donuts day, but a lot of them are pretty significant stuff. And so through the process of about two years, interviewing and vetting and things like that uh, with Navix, we became comfortable with an, a way to get access to the data that didn't really give me any details about any drama or anything like that. So it's all anonymized type of stuff, but gave me enough so that I could actually do data analysis on outcomes and inputs to, to this. And so we just ended up doing some regressions and, and joining it with other public data. And from that process, uh, we uncovered some pretty counterintuitive results and findings. Probably the most, I think, is the one that I started with. And that is, if you were to ask the average person, if we were to go down the street and grab someone and say, okay, you have to lead an organization for the next three years, which type of organization are you going to lead? You got two choices. You got one that has a ton. They're all, they're both the same in every way, except for one has a report, lots of reports of problems in their system. And the other one has very little. So one is maybe a standard deviation above the mean in reports, and one is a standard deviation below the mean. Which one would you want to lead? And I think everyone would say, I want the one with less less problems, right? That's what we think, because we think the reports are a one-to-one relationship with the problem. That's what we uncovered. That's really counterintuitive. That is not the case. When you actually look at the data, turns out the firms that have more reports in their system are the better organizations in almost every regard. So right, they're, they're more mature, they're, they usually have, uh, they're more profitable, they have stronger governance features. And then like the kicker on this is when you look at outcomes, you look at outcomes and it's like, 
crystal clear. So when I say outcomes, the only outcomes we can actually observe are lawsuits and fines. It'd be really nice if we saw happy customers and things like that, you know, how nice they were to the kids. But the nicest, the, the things we can measure are the, the things that are in the news and in litigations. And so when we actually look at litigation outcomes and fines, the results are pretty incredible. What we find is that firms that actually have more reports in the system have fewer material lawsuits. What I mean by f- material lawsuits is in order to do a what's called a multi, uh, multi-factor regression, compensate for all the other attributes, public companies are the best ones to benchmark this with because we can get all these other variables of number of employees and all these other things that could impact how many reports you get. So when you, when you do a multivariable analysis on this and run the regression, you find that the number of reports you get is negatively correlated and not just by a little bit, by the most, like if you're going to predict future lawsuits and not having future lawsuits, there's only one variable that is a stronger predictor of not having future lawsuits. And that is how many assets you have which makes sense. The larger organization you have, the more likely you are to get sued, right? Sometimes it's just not worth it, right? But it's pretty incredible that the second variable on all the variables associated with this is number of reports in the system. So you have fewer material lawsuits, which means reports that have to be publicly disclosed because of their significance. The amounts of your settlements are lower. Fines, fines are lower. And the number of fines are lower. So the amount you get fined in total and the the number of fines you get from government agencies is lower. And so that in a nutshell, I have a lot, we have a lot of other interesting findings, but that's the big high level findings from our initial paper that really kind of flipped the script on management intuition. And we're still only two years out of it being published. And we still have a lot of people that are leading systems, managing these systems, doing things with these systems without this counterintuitive knowledge that's true. You mentioned that the profitability of a company is positively influenced by the uh, growing number of tips. I have to be clear on this. There are associations and causality. The number of reports is associated with the number of firm attributes. Now, I would not say that necessarily number of reports is causal to profitability, but it's associated in the sense that Firms that are likely to be profitable are likely solving problems and interested in solving problems, which is part of the point of these systems. They're also companies that have better corporate governance. Corporate governance in the United States essentially is measured by how much corporate control the CEO has. So can we get rid of the CEO if they're bad or good and attributes like that and board members? There's there's a number of factors that are involved there. And so I want to just be clear, the causal mechanisms, I'm making an argument that there's a stronger causal association with lawsuits and fines. When it comes to firm attributes, it's really hard to to tell the chicken or the egg type of thing because a firm with better governance likely is going to invest more in these type of systems. Firm with poor governance is less likely to, and it's, it's it's hard to map it, but it's pretty clear the mapping between these results of the, these reports and the negative outcome variables. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. What do you think that European countries should be concerned with when they are starting to apply this absolutely new concept for many of them of whistleblower protection? What's needed in Europe is not necessarily the laws. Laws help for sure. The laws help. There needs to be as a cultural revolution when it comes to this. So Americans, we're just, there's a lot of things we're not good at, but one thing's for sure is like speaking up, we have had a culture of that for so long that when all the things people are afraid of with retaliation, with whistleblowing, all those things, for sure, they're fears. They're, they're valid fears to 
have, but they are not accurate. This kind of goes into a little bit of what I, how I talk about porting and the change in the culture on this thing. In the United States, even within the United States, if you ask somebody what's going to happen if they whistleblow, a lot of times they're going to think negative outcomes, even here. But there's a cultural thing here where people still feel like it's their job to say something. Now, here's the point. There's another thing I mentioned that was a convincing point to Navix about letting me do the research, because when you look at what's in the public, all we have are failures of whistleblowing, right? It's kind of like uh, I'm a religious person. When somebody says, oh, look at all the failings of religions here, here, and here. And I say, that's not the failings of religion. That is, that is, that's the, it's the prostitution of faith for other, uh, other perverse means, right? It's the perversion of the faith, not the actual true principles, right? The analogy I use is there's a data analysis that was done on planes coming back during one of the military exercises during one of the great wars. And they did an analysis and the military said, okay, where are we finding bullet holes on these planes? And they said, okay, let's go ahead and patch up the planes where we're finding bullet holes. The problem was the data they had where they found bullet holes was actually the wrong data. The data they needed was the bullet holes for the planes that didn't come back because the planes that came back with bullet holes had bullet holes in their wings, parts of the tail. There were no bullet holes in the cockpit and in, in, in the engines. And it turns out that if you hit one of the cockpits or the engines, that's what's going to take down a plane. And that data you don't have. And so a lot of our formation and the public assumptions about whistleblowing is essentially that, oh, it's going to be bad for you. And that's not the case. It turns out, and I think this is not something that's uniquely American. I think it turns out the average person feels very similar across cultures when, they, when something's wrong. If I remember correctly, I think the sample size you worked on was something like 2 million. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's... It's, there's it's a dream come true as an academic for sample sizes. <laughs> Germany is one of the countries which did never have any kind of whistleblower protection. And if you look at uh, the numbers from here, I would say that for every company who tells me that they do have a whistleblower hotline uh, and they do have tips, I know at least nine other companies telling me that they don't have any tips and everything is fine. So there is still a long way to go over here, not to mention the fact that uh, historical arguments are being used to block the entire whistleblower discussions, such as saying that, you know, whistleblowers are informants and uh, my country has a particular history of, you know, dictatorships having used informants, things like that. It's very uh, easy to ignore the fact that the informant of the Third Reich is not the whistleblower of today. Yeah, that's the equivalent of not liking fire because your house burned down. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, like it's a tool. It's a tool. Can the tool be misused? Absolutely. It can be misused. But that doesn't mean that you don't have the tool for it. It is an important tool. I mean, again, the ACFE is very clear about that. So whistleblowers are by far the most important tool in detecting fraud and corruption. It is the tool. And their data even has problems. I love them. So this is not a criticism of them. But even internal audit, you talk to anybody external or internal audit, they will tell you nearly all of the findings that they attribute to the internal audit, which is the second most that they find, is attributable to humans telling them. And so when you take the whistleblower data and you classify it instead of whistleblower, you say, humans telling me that there's a problem. That's what it is. You look at internal audit and external audit, which are the next two, I believe, in their data, right, right after whistleblowing. And, and if you actually coded those probably right for when they came up, 
very rarely is internal audit finding something or external audit finding something without a human being involved pointing a finger nudging in a certain direction. Small correction. The internal audit is indeed number two, but the fraud investigation department is number three. Ah. Yeah. And external audit is just in a very low single digits. It's uh, around 3%. Yeah. External auditors. I don't like, like Yeah, that. we don't talk. <laughs> the uh, argument is that external audit is actually doing the investigative job and the detection job. And yeah. this is something which has been proven to be wrong for yes. at least the last 24 years. So yes. coming back to your statement that there are so many wrong assumptions about whistleblowers out there, how do you explain the persistence of ideas like that? How do you explain the persistence of the idea that the external auditor is the one doing the detection? Hidden data. The problem is, is that organizations, this was my pitch to Navex where they finally, I'm, I was slightly convincing because I, I saw all the problems with this that you're bringing up. I said, data is hidden on all the successes, all the things and all the corrections that are going right. And because that data is hidden, people don't see it and people don't know. And if they knew about it, it'd make a difference. So you mentioned at the beginning, more profitable related to these systems. And and I wouldn't necessarily say it's uh, just whistleblowing that creates that increased profit, but it's an employee focus. Turns out humans are pretty important. Seems like an obvious thing to probably a lot of people that are listening to this, but there's been research that, that used to look at humans as commodities, as interchangeable and replaceable in organizations. And turns out from the research is that the culture of an organization is incredibly valuable beyond this idea of catching bad things. You want your employees to do things, to work extra hours, to actually be a part of a team, to go the distance, to do amazing things beyond what we'd normally think they are getting it. Regardless of what people say about you know history and how the tool's been used in the past, the tool now to use it for that kind of good, I, it's hard for me to, to connect with who would be against that. Exactly. How can the credibility of a whistleblower channel be improved? Let's talk about the um, person or organization receiving that tip. Is that something relevant to the whistleblower? Yes. So this is like, I think a book could be written on this. So I'll give you my high level opinion on this. Keep in mind, I know this via talking to other people and dealing with it because in fact, I've never been a part of responding to these things. So I can tell you best practices from the people I've talked to related to that. So I fully acknowledge my, my limitations there. The first thing is, is that unfortunately, you can't make this like most of our business websites that you see out there where you look and you click for help. And there's a web page of a million different things written that never rightly answer your question. And it's impossible to talk to a human. Turns out you have to talk to a human in this process. Humans are needed. This is an early tip on a finding for a paper that's yet released. So it's pretty neat what we find. So when you think about whistleblowing systems, so we have this data and what we got was a bunch of ones and zeros for a bunch of different categories. We didn't get really, really text of like free text of anything that was going on. One of the categories we had was, is this person anonymous or not? So did they reveal their identity or not? So we looked at this and we said, okay, Let's look at this revealed or not. We also asked, we don't want all the details, but can you just give us the number of fields that somebody filled out in a form versus not? Because when you go to one of these online forms, you can put your name, you can put the other stuff, what it's related to, where did it happen, or you could just do a free text response. We found something interesting. When we looked at 
anonymity. I think most people would think an anonymous reporter likely has really significant information. And as a result, those reports are probably going to be the most valuable reports for preventing problems. If you ask the average person on the street, you got to bet a million, you got to bet five bucks, you have a chance to make a million, which one would you choose? I think most people would say, oh, I want to look at the anonymous reports because that's going to be the, the juicy stuff. Well, there's another assumption in this process that's being made. It's that you have all the information you need in the anonymous reports. And the problem is, is that this process is not just a matter of like sending a note in a bottle and casting it into the ocean and it being solved. Turns out an investigation is need to be, needs to be done. People need to explore it. And when you look at the anonymous reports, they are substantiated at a much lower rate than the reports that have the person identified. Now here's the kicker that's really counterintuitive. If you actually look at the number of the amount of information that's filled out, the reports that are actually more related to that are that that prevent future lawsuits and fines. Now, I'm not saying you toss out anything here. We're talking about data and signaling. So everything I say is related to data signaling. I don't want anybody to take what I'm saying here and toss out an anonymous report or toss out a report that doesn't fit this. We're looking at aggregates across large data. So this is a data information signaling. Turns out reports that have the least amount of information that have just the name and blanks is the strongest relationship between negative relationship between future fines and lawsuits which is fascinating because all the people have done as has revealed is reveal their their name and what we found in interviewing people and talking to people in compliance is what what these are they're a different form of anonymity so you can imagine somebody has something juicy something really big they're worried about. They can go online and we usually think of it as somebody being anonymous or not anonymous, but there's this other category that they can be. And it's, it's kind of like an anonymous informant where essentially they submit their name and they say, hey, I've got something big that I need to talk to somebody or they just submit their name. And then a human shows up, closes the door and say, hey, what's going on? Tell me what's going on just between you and me. And the person says, essentially, I don't want my name to be tied to this, but you need to look here. And a great example of this is the Watergate scandal that happened in the United States where President Nixon spied on his opposition party during the election process. And the CIA director didn't give a single document at the time. We didn't know who the guy was. His name was Deep Throat. Didn't give a single document uh, to the news reporter. All he said was, look here. Don't go there. Look here. And they had a few infrequent meetings, but it caused, and it, it basically uncovered a, one of the biggest scandals in our, in our country. And so this anonymous informant uh, way of dealing with it signals uh, just kind of the value of humans. Humans are important for identifying problems, period. I'd love to get robots in here. It'd be great if we could just get robots, write the code, have robots do it. But turns out humans know the difference between right and wrong. And humans investigating is critically important. And so you need to have humans in the process. And so that when people actually invest by giving feedback, they feel valued. And so that's, that's kind of like I, I touched on just, I scratched the surface on, on that. You, it's very important for the people that submit. A lot of times when people submit information, they might submit a claim about something. You might investigate it. And what could happen is, is that nothing happens to the person. They don't get fired. And this person thinks that person should get fired. And unfortunately, you can't tell the person, even in America, you can't tell the person what happened in the investigation. What you can do is go to them and say, 
thank you. We are working with this. This has been documented. Your name has not been connected to it if they didn't want their name connected to it, but we want you to know that you have been valued and heard. Please speak up again if similar things happen. Please talk. And you have to do that. You can't just take the data and run because you could take the data, run, find a conclusion. And then if you go back to, don't go back to the person and tell them, hey, look, thank you. Then they're like, well, what was the point? I sent something off and nothing happened. And you could, like, you look at this and what happens a lot of times, person gets suspended, person gets a pay cut, person gets demoted. But a lot of that might not translate publicly to the organization, but it's very clear that something's happened as a consequence of what's going on and action has been taken. Since you can't communicate that, the verbal connection of valuing them is needed. Let's stay with this example and look at the other person in the room. Yeah. Who is the whistleblower talking to? We have a very interesting statistic, again, from the report to the nation, from, from the ACFE. They've tried to figure out who the first point of contact was uh, for each whistleblower. And it turns out that the direct superior uh, is the most important one, about 30%. Then comes basically the fraud investigation team, roughly 14. Then it's internal audit. Again, roughly 12. So if you're adding the direct superior plus the investigators, you're at 50% plus. Surprising to some is that those departments which are actually presented internally as being the go-to departments, meaning HR and in-house counsel, play no role. Did the ACFE get it right at that point or... I think the ACFE is in the right direction on their numbers for sure. I critique them for the coding issue. They're just taking a survey and getting that survey back, right? And so when an internal audit finds somebody that's a whistleblower, they could check it as internal audit or they could check it as whistleblower. But you talk to people that do internal audit, they'll tell you. It's always somebody speaking. And in the case here, I think they've gotten it much closer to, to what's going on in the sense that a lot of times people are talking to people they know because they trust them and they say, hey, this is going on. And what you need is, when that person that's above them, that superior, isn't available, an alternative channel for them. Because you can imagine working for someone where something isn't going right, having that alternative channel and it being handled appropriately. What's the best practice in the United States when it comes to manning whistleblower hotlines? Who is doing that? From what I've observed, best practices, uh, there are lawyers involved. Uh, but frequently a compliance officer is somebody that has a lot of HR experience. It has a lot of people skills and is someone that can engender trust quickly. It's somebody that you go into the room that you feel comfortable talking to because these people need to be the person that interacts with that one, that, that individual after a report comes in that reaches out to them. And that person needs to be able to signal with authenticity that they are grateful for the person speaking up and that they can trust them to protect them. Because even within the organization, people need to be protected. And you'd be surprised, a lot of organizations don't kind of get that concept and they'll forward a report on to other people and things like that. Best practice, have somebody dedicated to this process that has skill, training, and attributes of trust and communication that can build those relationships quickly with people that they talk to so that they know that they're protected and valuable. Coming to the end of our discussion today, Carl, question I'm always asking, what would be the one decision having the greatest impact on fighting fraud and corruption from your point of view and based on your experience? You need to have the manager at the top saying things like, I want to hear about problems. I want to know what's going on in this place. And I want this place to be an amazing place to work. 
And I can't do that without your voice. Speak. Here's the hotline. Here's the number. Here's the information. I promise we are going to protect you. You will not get backlash for reporting. That tone at the top is critical. You see what that kind of tone at the top does for engaging people. Organizations need to have that tone at the top because it's funny, the organizations that get this, they're the best places to work for. Everybody wants to work for them because they've figured out and ironed out the problems and they figured out the culture of making things work and accepting things and figuring out how, how to get through problems. So so I would say if you're a manager and leader, this is one tool and a powerful tool that will indoctrinate a culture. You retain talent and keep people in your organizations and discover problems before they become huge and big fines, right? And big problems to your organization, lawsuits and that type of thing. And when it comes to a country, I think uh, the best thing we can do is hold up people that speak up as heroes, as people to look up to, you know, the, there's a lot of negative terminology, even in the United States with someone that speaks up when there's a problem. The reality is, is that speaking up is important. There's a lot of bad things going on. There needs to be more of an attitude of somebody spoke up. That's impressive. That is something I respect and revere in the same way that you would respect someone that stood up for someone that's, you know, getting pummeled in a fight and broke up a fight, right? Like there's a, there is, there needs to be a cultural move like that. And those two things create a cultural aspect. The laws are great. We need this cultural push. When we have that cultural push, that's when you start seeing big changes. Thank you very much for your time today, Kyle. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for joining us this week on the Grand Fraud Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, nemexis.de, and subscribe to this show so you'll never miss an episode.